and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. Amen. Again, so good to see everybody here this morning. And uh, if this is your first time at City Grace, you actually picked a, picked a great Sunday to come. Um, we're kicking off a new series today, and we'll be together on, on this topic for the next four or five Sundays. Um, and I, I think you're going to like it, especially if you're maybe newer to following Jesus or maybe trying to get back into following Jesus. Um, maybe, you know, if you're somewhere in that space, you're not really sure about following Jesus. Um, if you've been in church, trying to come back to church, um, if you're kind of confused about church and, and kind of where you stand, some things you like, some things you don't like, I think you're going to like this series. Um, I, I'm excited about this. I'm kind of passionate about this, um, but I'm, I'm a pastor, and I'm a church nerd, so that just kind of makes sense. But you, I, I hope you are, and uh, that's my goal is to make you as excited about this as I am. Um, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that this is kind of like the latest version of our church, the latest iteration of our church, and, and uh, there have been lots of versions of our church before. Uh, I am sure after I am off the scene, there will be a lot of versions of our church that come along after um, and some of the changes that you see going on, some of the new things you see at City Grace, some of the things that we're starting to enjoy um, is kind of this new normal here. Uh, we're, they're not even really changes or, or things or ideas that are, that are new to us or original with us. There's kind of this movement underway really in America and in, in Western, the Western world. And, and, and a lot of church planners are kind of picking up on this, especially a lot of church planners because it's easier to start uh, a culture new than it is to change a culture. But there's kind of this movement underway in America to just kind of see, like, you know, what's going on in the church world that is making America so post-Christian? Because we're living in a post-Christian America. It's not a non-Christian America. It's not that they don't know who Jesus is or what the Bible is or that there are Christian churches. It's that people just don't care. They know who Jesus is, and it doesn't matter. They know that there are Christian churches, and it just doesn't matter to too many people. And so there's kind of this, this movement going on in, in the church leadership world of trying to find out, you know, what's getting in the way of people seeing Jesus. And let's try and get back to kind of that core, the raw core of Christianity and what everything was supposed to be about. And, and look, this happens every once in a while. It doesn't matter the industry. It doesn't matter the organization. Um, it, it, this, this doesn't mean people before were bad. It doesn't mean things before were bad. Older ways of doing things were bad. It doesn't mean people were wrong. Older ways of doing things were wrong. It's just change, and change just happens, and time is relentless, man. I'm telling you, I recently turned 37 again, and time is just, it's relentless, right? And, and social issues change, and there are challenges, and, and, and methods change, and especially culture changes over time. I mean, you know this. You get this, right? You look back at pictures of your parents, and they were wearing bell-bottoms. Like, they weren't wrong, for wearing, well, they're kind of wrong for wearing bell bottoms, but they weren't wrong for doing that, right? But we all look back at those pictures and we kind of chuckle now. And I'm sure in a few years, my kids are, you know, tomorrow will look back at what I wore and chuckle, you know, and, and, and just things change. Things change. And so the ideas around church and the methods around church are changing, right? There's no more stained glass and, and steeples anymore, and that's kind of expensive to insure anyway. Now it's kind of like storefronts or industrial buildings like, like we have here. There are no more pews, um, no more organs, either the B3 or the pipe organs anymore. No more church four times a week. No more three-hour services. Can somebody say amen and hallelujah to that? Yeah, yeah. No, preachers don't preach really long anymore. Got laughter and no amens. Okay. So, you know, and most of, look, look, I get this. Most of you, like, you're kind of in the change, experiencing the change, and maybe you don't even really kind of notice the change until somebody says something, and I get that. I mean, you have a real job, right? And you're busy raising kids and making a living, you know, but I don't have anything to do all day, so I just sit around and I kind of just notice these changes. And if you've been with us for a while, you know that we're maybe quote-unquote, a little bit kind of towards the front edge of this, this whole movement. We're not really on the front edge. I kind of like learning from other people's mistakes, but we're, we're, we're kind of a little bit more forward and trying to help navigate some of these changes because either you can make change happen or change is going to happen to you. One of the 
two is going to, you know, it's, it's just a reality. Change is a reality. And our kids' environment is probably one of the next big challenges that we'll kind of undertake. And we just really want to show kids how much we love them. We want to show the generation coming up how much we value them, that we want to be here for them. This is not just your parents' church. It's not just your grandparents' religion. This is something that you can engage with on a day-to-day service. Worship services and the music, right, it's a little more, it's different than it used to be. It might even feel a little bit more like a concert, you know, it's like we don't want natural light in here and this kind of thing, right? We want moving backgrounds and all this stuff. We still won't do smoke and moving lights and leather pants, though. Can I hear a good amen from somebody who does not want to see Dustin in leather pants? Yeah, but... And and then when you look on social media, when people are bragging about their churches nowadays, right? Not very many people are bragging about, like, their church choirs or their church choir robes. Or their suits, right? Or, or, you know, there's not many pictures of pulpits on platforms anymore. It's stuff like this or tables, you know, and, and, and you know, mostly now it's lights and videos and this kind of concert atmosphere. And again, church in America and in Europe and some parts of Canada, it's changing. And, and you might, you know, think that's good. You might think that's bad or you might not think about it at all. But it's just, it's just a reality that church is changing. And again, for those that have been around, listen, the tendency as things start to shift and as things start to change is to think that change is some some kind of condemnation on the things that were before. That it's some kind of pointed finger at the, the previous generation, some kind of judgment that they did things wrong. Can somebody say no? Listen, everything about the new that you are enjoying. Hello, everything here at City Grace that we are actually enjoying is actually because of the generation that came before, because of their love and their generosity and everything that we, you know, that we experience. It's because of them. Like if we stand anywhere, we stand on the shoulders of the generation of Jesus followers that came before us. But the only thing that's constant is change. It's just change. And it's kind of nice now a little bit, right? I mean, like I'm up here preaching and I'm wearing jeans. And my mom can't even say anything to me anymore because I'm her pastor now. So, you know, I wear jeans to church, right? I don't have to wear a tie. Can I hear an amen from some men in the house? Ladies don't have to wear heels. Can I hear an amen from... Yeah, all right. That was good. Sound like some men voices in there, too. It's kind of... It's a new day, you know? But, uh, but look... Like, and it's great for the current age or generation, and we don't have to build expensive buildings that only serve one purpose. Now we use buildings that kind of have multiple purposes, and it's kind of making everything a little bit more accessible to people who have kind of had a problem in the past with religion and church and those kinds of things. But listen, this is so important, but with all of the change... With all of the cool environments and the lights on the sound system and and quote-unquote progress so-called, listen, we still hold on as a church. We still hold on to things that hold us back. We still hold on to things that hold us back. Even with the changes around us, we still hold on to some things inside of us that hold us back from being everything that Jesus called his church to be. We, 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 we get held back from becoming the people fully charged with carrying out his mission. And, and so maybe if you're new to the church, you're trying to re-engage, but you're not really sure if you like the church, you know, you're not even really sure if you like Christians. Uh, look, if we heard your story, we probably wouldn't like those Christians either. We get it. But there's just a lot of things going on and, and a lot of, th- you know, labels being thrown at Christianity and labels being thrown at Christians. And, and listen, if you're not all the way in yet, this is a perfect series because we're going to discover this throughout the series, that most of the things that people resist about church are things the church should resist. Most of the things that your coworkers resist about church are things that the church itself should resist. Most of the things that your family members and your neighbors resist about church are things that the church itself should resist. And we're trying to boil everything down to its essence here. And, and if you think about this, from an outsider's perspective, what is the church supposed to be? From somebody who doesn't follow Jesus, who doesn't believe that Jesus was anything more than a historical figure, what was the church supposed to be? Now, that's interesting to think about it that way, like from a non-believer's perspective. That's not a perspective that we engage with very often, right? And yet we're here to influence non-believers, but we don't often engage with their perspective. So from their perspective, what is the church? From unbelievers' perspective, why is there a church 
Now, we know why we should exist. Maybe we should know why we're supposed to exist. But why are they supposed to think that we exist? And this is the thing that the church should be to outsiders. We should be a community of people who follow the teachings of a man, who claim to be sent from God to explain God and to make a way to God. This is what the church is supposed to be to outsiders, a community of people who follow the teachings of a man, who claim to be sent from God to explain God and to make a way to God. Now look, there's nothing really to resist about that. If you're an outsider, you shouldn't have a problem with that. You might not believe it, but there's no real reason to kind of push back against it, right? You might even want to hear what he had to say so that you can evaluate it for yourself. You cannot believe in who Jesus claimed to be, but you don't have to resist him, especially when you realize that the top three commands that Jesus gave, and really they kind of just boil down to one, when you realize that the top three commands that Jesus gave are basically this, love God, love each other, and love your enemies. I just saved you a whole lot of Bible reading right there. That's basically it. Love God, love each other, love your enemies. Now, what is there to resist about that? Who would have a problem with that, right? Everybody should get on board with this. Regardless of what everybody believes about number one, everybody should embrace numbers two and number three. What kind of world could we have? What kind of city would Fairfield be if we could just get everybody to look at number two and number three regardless of where they are on number one? Think about that. The only thing that people might find to resist is the identity of Jesus, who he said he was, where he came from, and was there really this father, this creator that sent him into the world. In fact, in the first 300 years of Christianity's existence, this is amazing, the only resistance that they got was against their saying that Jesus was king. See, Rome was in power. Rome was in charge of the world for the first 300 years of Christianity's existence. And what happened is the church marched into the world after Jesus you know, died and resurrected and, and then sent them off on their mission. The church marched into that Roman world and said, look, Caesar is not our king. Jesus is really our king. And Nero didn't like it. And the other Caesars that came after him didn't like it either. And so they persecuted the Christians. But Christians were not hated because they were judgmental in the first 300 years of their existence. Everything that people say about Christians and the reasons people don't like Christians now, it wasn't reasons that were, they weren't reasons that were given in the first 300 years of Christianity's existence. They knew that they had these weird, you know, they, they knew that they were a little bit different, but they didn't hate them because of their traditions. They didn't offend people except the Caesars. People didn't like, you know, or not like Christians because they had weird music or because they produced some of the worst acting in movie. Hello, somebody that's ever seen a Christian film. We'll just let that go. And it's certainly not because the Christians were exclusive, right? Christians said, look, we're going to be as nice as we can be to everybody that we can be nice to, and this is going to be the proof that Jesus is the true king, and not only is he the true king, he is the only true kind of king. And in a world ruled by an empire that already had a king, that message didn't go over too well. And so the Christians were persecuted. Now, wouldn't it be awesome, and Jason's alluded to this before in one of his message series. If y'all missed that, you missed a great one. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be awesome if the only thing people resisted about Christianity was what we had to say about Jesus? Wouldn't that be awesome if people said, you know, those Christians, they're great bosses. They're the best neighbors I've ever had. I hope my daughter marries one. I hope my son marries one. They, they treat their women amazing. Everything about those Christians is amazing. But man, they think Jesus is God and that I just have a real problem. Wouldn't it be awesome if that was the only negative thing they had to say about the church and about Christians? Wouldn't it be amazing if the only thing people didn't like about us is that we're so sold out on Jesus? But that's never the objection, is it? You never really hear anybody say, the only reason I don't like Christians or the church is because they follow Jesus. The church, the Jesus movement, hear me, we should be irresistible 
The only thing people should resist is our central, or our central ideas around Jesus, that he, in fact, was the son of God, and he was sent to be the king of everything, and he is the true kind of king. Now look, anything besides those central views about Jesus, we as the church, if we are getting resistance from the people that we are supposed to influence and win to Jesus, then we need to pause and at least take a look and see if there's anything in what we're doing that we need to make adjustments to. Mm, that's hard, isn't it? That's hard. There's a story, um, uh, a pastor told a story of, of visiting China on, on a trip, and during his, his visit to China, he was touring one of the factories there, and while they were there in one of the factories, uh, one of the young executives, a young lady in that factory, was kind of shadowing them on the tour because she was learning how to give tours to outsiders and visitors, and so they're, they're going around through the whole tour, and they're seeing how everything's made, and, and it, just this incredible facility, and, and all of the, you know, robots and, and all of the, you know, the, the stuff that is going on, the industrialization and, and the technology and the advancement. And, and they got to the end of the tour and the pastor said, you know, they, they stopped and they said, does anybody have any questions? And nobody in their group, well, they, they had like a couple of small questions. And then there was kind of like that, you know, silent pause where you're waiting to see, okay, is everybody done asking questions? And the young lady executive, who's not supposed to be asking questions, supposed to be answering questions, she stopped. She said, I have a question. And she asked the pastor, she said, you're a pastor of an American church, aren't you? And he said, well, yeah, I am. And she said, I have a question for you. Why doesn't everybody in America go to church? Why doesn't everybody in America go to church? That's a great question, isn't it? And come to find out she was a recent convert to Christianity. Someone had given her some documentation. She had never heard about Jesus before. And somebody gave her a study to go through. And, and she kind of, you know, began following Jesus on her own. But she had no access to a church. Where she lived, the only state-approved churches were kind of far away, and she told him that the underground churches that were near to her were a little bit sketchy, a little bit dangerous, and she had heard that America was full of churches, that cities had multiple churches all over the place, but that most Americans do not go to church, and she was confused. Why wouldn't everybody in America who had heard about Jesus, why wouldn't they go to a church? Why wouldn't everybody want to be a part of a community that, as we say sometimes around here, that one another's one another, that we care for one another, that we pray for one another and forgive one another and love one another and support and encourage one another? Who wouldn't want to gather with other people to celebrate every Sunday that we are forgiven, freely forgiven, freely baptized in mercy and grace every day of our existence. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? Who wouldn't want to get together with others and learn about our incredible creator God and just how good he is and have our minds and our hearts open up to new perspectives and new viewpoints on God and who he is and just how amazing that he is. We say it like this sometimes. Who doesn't want their life to be better and to be better at life? Who doesn't want their life to be better and to be better at life? Regardless of what you believe about Jesus, if you will take him seriously, if you will put his teachings into effect, I guarantee you, your life will be better and you will be better at life. Now, I didn't say that if you follow Jesus, you'll get a brand new Mercedes. Like, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. Send in an offering and you, you know, you'll suddenly have blessings from on high. No, but your life will be better and you will be better a living life. So that's a great question, isn't it? Why doesn't everybody in America go to church? Why is it that some of the biggest complaints about the church are things that nobody ever said about the church's founder? What is it about the church and about Christianity that makes the church so resistible to outsiders? And I think some of the things that we're going to find out in this series that most of the, you know, one of the things that we're going to find is that most of the things that people resist about the church aren't new things being added on to the ideas of God and religion, but they are actually old things that Jesus came to fulfill and to set aside that have actually been added back in and crept back in to the church experience. And so to, to wrap our brains around this, we're going to 
introduce a term this week and kind of talk about this a little bit and, and use this throughout the rest of the series. And the term that we're going to talk about is this one right here, the temple model. The temple model. When we say this, we're not just talking about the Jewish temple or ancient Christianity or anything like that. We're talking about all religions. Almost all ancient religions follow this temple model to some degree. And a lot of the religions that are a part of the world today still follow this, this temple model. It was, it was present in Egypt and Assyria, and Babylon, and it was there when the Greeks were, were ruling the world. It was there in the Roman Empire. It was there in the Jewish temple, and again, there are some still existing today. But the temple model always has these four things right here. Sacred places, and usually in those sacred places are sacred texts that are then read and interpreted for everybody by sacred men, and then passed out to sincere followers. There's always a sacred ground or a sacred building or a sacred burial site somewhere, right? And usually in that sacred place, there is a sacred text or maybe a sacred object, object and, and maybe one that somehow gives guidance, a voice or an oracle, right? And, and those texts or those voices, they're usually controlled by, they're usually understood by a few sacred men. And notice it's almost always men, Right? There's a few sacred men, and then the men tell all of the sincere followers, and we might say the superstitious followers, the sincere believers, like, based on these sacred texts that I know about and that you can't understand for yourself, here's how you're supposed to live your life. Here's how you're supposed to conduct a sacred transaction. And if you don't, then the gods are going to threaten you, or the gods are going to punish you, or the gods are going to be angry with you, and so you need to listen to me. And a lot of, even in the world today, a lot of the mud hut communities in the world, when you go into those mud hut communities, who's the most powerful person in those small communities? It's the witch doctor, Right? And the witch doctor usually lives in this sacred, scary place, and he doesn't even need a fence. He just needs a few skulls or maybe a few like artifacts around there, right? And, and he can help you or hurt you or curse your enemies. He's in control of people. He's in control of the outcomes. And more importantly than that, he's in control of the interpretation of the outcomes, because when you give that sacred man an offering and things are supposed to go your way and then things don't go your way, well, he's got to explain that. You didn't give enough. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't believe hard enough. And then we look at, you know, outside of those communities, look at the, the, the religions, you know, for example, in our world today that sponsor terrorism, both now in our present day and even in the past and even Christians. Hello, we don't get a, we don't get a pass either. Even in Christianity's past, sacred men. Read sacred texts and tell the sincere followers to do things that we know are horrible and horrific in the name of their God. Why? Because there are a few sacred men interpreting these few sacred texts and often in the pursuit of expanding their power and their sacred places. And the temple model has been alive throughout human history. The temple model is alive and well today. It's thriving. And sadly, this temple model thinking is still alive even in the local church to some extent. And you can trust me on that because you're sincere and I'm a sacred man who's about to open a sacred text. Okay, well, we'll just kind of keep. <laughs> Hold on before you leave. I'm going to have a woman come up and finish the rest of the message just so we can kind of, no. But do you guys see what I'm saying? Now, look, I'm not up here talking myself out of a job. Nobody get nervous. We're okay. We're still going to continue the sacred model. No, no I'm just kidding. We're not going to. Don't, don't. But look at this. The temple model thinking, this is exactly what it does. It grants extraordinary power to sacred men in sacred places who interpret the meaning of sacred text. And again, this feels exactly like we're doing each and every Sunday. We get together in a sacred place once a week, and Jared gets up here and puts yellow words on the screen, like Junior says, right, from a sacred text. And every once in a while, and I'll even do it today, I'm going to throw up a, I'm going to get fancy and throw up a Greek word on the screen. And you don't, you don't even know Greek, right? But that's going to make me look really smart. Can I hear an amen from somebody? You didn't say I was smart, you just said I look really smart, all right? So you get a pass there, right? And, and then people take notes sometimes while I'm talking, which I think is so weird that anybody would ever write down anything that I would say. The people closest to me usually try and forget all of the things that I say, you know? And it's a good thing my dad taught me to borrow a lot of thoughts from people that are smarter than me. But listen, this is, this is most churches. 
This is the way things work. Sacred rooms and sacred buildings, right? Growing up in the church like I did. Don't run in God's house. It's like, well, wait, I thought my body was the temple of God. It's like, well, you just you rebellious kid, be quiet. You know, just don't run in God's house. There's a few sacred men. There are a few empowered, you know, women nowadays, but it's mostly men. And, and then you take offerings so that you can support them talking about the sacred text. And if you do this, you'll go to the good place. And if you don't, they have the power somehow to tell you that you're going to hell. And they try and gather more sincere followers, you know, because you're just sincere followers and you're not smart enough on your own to know what Jesus meant. And so you need me to tell you what Jesus really, really meant. This is it. It's the temple model. And it's kind of infected Christianity to some extent. But listen, regardless of what we end up doing with some of our methodology, and this is one of the reasons that I push small groups so hard and so much. Listen, you've got to know that it's it's not supposed to be about rows. It's supposed to be about, oh, thank God. Somebody remembered that. Hallelujah. Amen. Y'all just take a pause while I do a victory lap around here. No, but just it's not just about rows. It's about circles. It's about God in you, the Holy Spirit living in you, talking through you. And this is so, so, so important. Listen, we've got to understand this. And regardless of what we do with our methodology and regardless of how you see things going forward, listen to me. The arrival of Jesus on the planet signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new between God and people. Now listen, I'm not just talking about the Jewish temple when I say this. I'm talking about every temple, of every religion, of all time, of all peoples, of all places. The arrival of Jesus on the planet signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new between God and people. At the end of his public career, when Jesus was about to to kind of blast off and, and leave the movement in the hands of his followers, he calls them together. And he says, look, you guys are all Jewish. And so this thing's going to start in Jerusalem, but you're not supposed to end here. From here, you're going to go into all the world, to all people groups in all languages. And you're going to tell them what you have seen. And you're going to tell them what you have heard of me, because what I am giving you works everywhere. It works everywhere. And when Jesus left his followers to launch his movement, think about this. There were no more sacred places. Jesus did not leave them with a building. He didn't leave them with a shrine. He didn't leave them with a secret map where X marks the spot. He didn't leave any of that. Why? Why didn't Jesus leave them with any more sacred places? Because Jesus taught that it's not places that, it's, that are sacred. It's you that is sacred. And you you, and you, and you, and you, and you, you are all sacred. And if you travel to the most sacred and revered place on the whole planet, and you stand there on that sacred place, that in God's eyes, the person to your right, and the person to your left, and the people behind you and in front of you are more sacred to God than any piece of dirt on the planet, any stone, any shrine, any statue. You, you, you're sacred. That's what Jesus taught. And what Jesus taught also was that there should be no more special sacred people. The greatest people in in his kingdom, in his movement, are the ones that serve everybody else. That's what he said. You don't need a high priest anymore. You don't need anybody else to be a go-between, between you and God anymore. Because Jesus is the high priest for everyone. And he's turning all of his followers into a group of kings and of priests unto God. That you would never need to come to a place like this and have a person like me declare you clean or unclean before God. I can't declare you clean or unclean before God. You could come up here and I could tell you exactly what prayer to pray, exactly what what words to repeat after me, and you could say all of them and be lying to my face. And I say, you're clean? Or I say, you're not clean? Or you come up here and you you mispronounce one of the words or don't say exactly what, and then I'm going to tell you you're unclean if your heart was sincere. I can't tell you if your heart's clean or not clean. Only you and God know if your heart is really clean or not clean. Hello? You don't need me to tell you if you're clean with God. Now, I can teach you about what he said about forgiveness, but then it's up to you. And then the sacred text. 
When Jesus showed up, these sacred texts that existed was the Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament. It was the Hebrew Bible at the time. And Jesus said that all of the Old Testament, all of it could be fulfilled with a single verb. 39, what we call books, with all of the chapters and authors and everything else, could all be boiled down to a single word. And that's why when the church was launched, they didn't even have a Bible. They wrote the Bible as they kind of figured things out. They wrote the New Testament. They had some letters that started getting passed around maybe like 40 years later, 30, 40, 50 years later. And it couldn't be complicated because it was launched by a population that was upwards of 95% illiterate. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. Most of the first century champions of faith and the martyrs of faith in those early hundreds of years of Christianity were only as educated as your eight-year-old son or daughter. And those men and women turned the world, not upside down, they turned the world right side up for God and for the message that he had sent to this world through Jesus Christ. Now think about that. Think about that. When Jesus launched something, he launched something completely and entirely new. It was not the temple model 2.0. It wasn't an upgrade. It wasn't an update. It wasn't a dot, right? Like temple dot, something else. No, it was something completely revolutionizing to the relationship between God and people. And listen to me, this is all in the New Testament. You can read it for yourself. You can figure it out for yourself. But all through his ministry, Jesus introduced some new things. One of the first things that Jesus introduced, he predicted a new movement based on his followers. And this is such an interesting passage to me. This gets kind of you know, misread. If you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard this before. And Jesus and, and his closest men were, were walking up to a city called Caesarea Philippi. And, and, and it had been renamed within Jesus' lifetime, maybe about 15 years before this story takes place. And and what had happened is you, you guys have probably all heard of Julius Caesar, right? He was come and he, he was the, the first guy that, you know, was kind of like tried to be a dictator of Rome and he got killed. Well, after Julius Caesar died, people said, well, you know, Julius Caesar was revolutionary. He must have been a god. And so they deified Julius Caesar after he died. After he died, they said, well, he was a god. And then his son Augustus, or his adopted son, you know, it's kind of a weird relationship there. He became the next one in line, the first actual ruler over Rome. And so they said of Augustus, well, man, he's the son of a god. But he was the son of a dead god. He was the son of a god who had no more power, no more influence, nothing else that could be contributed into society. And so the city was named in honor of them during the lifetime of Jesus. And I think the text is telling us that they're talking about all of this, you know, Caesar being a god after he had died, and Augustus is the son of a dead god, you know. And then Jesus is kind of talking with the guys. He's like, you know, people are saying all this stuff about Julius and Augustus. And, you know, well, who are people, you know, what are people saying about me? What's the word on the street about me? And people in those days had weird ideas about who Jesus was. They're like, well, what do they think? They think you're what, you know, Elijah, one of the old preachers who like died and now you're reincarnated. They think maybe you're John the Baptist who had died by this time. John the Baptist kind of got reincarnated, but you guys were alive at the same time. So that's kind of weird too. We're not really sure how that works. And Jesus kind of, it's like raising his eyebrows. He's like, well, hey, you guys, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and Peter was Jewish, and he knows all of the Jewish scriptures, all of what we call the Old Testament, all of it talked, you know, about this rescuer king that was going to come into the world from God himself, and the Jewish people call him the Messiah. And so Peter says, I think you are the Messiah, and you're not just the son of a dead God like, a de like Augustus is. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. That's who you are, Jesus. And Jesus says, look, Peter, you're right. And my living father is the one that showed you this truth about who I am. And so here's something else, Peter. Now that you've said who I am, let me tell you who I think you are. And I say to you, I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this foundation that you have just given about my identity, that I'm the, I'm the Messiah and I'm actually the son of the living God, on this rock, I am going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. Now, are you guys ready? We're in a sacred place. You guys ready for a sacred man to explain a sacred text to you this morning? Here we go. This word church. It comes from the Greek, or I told you I was going to look fancy this morning. Look, I even got Greek font up there. It's, it's awesome. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. In Spanish, what's the word for church? 
Iglesia. It sounds like ecclesia. It doesn't sound at all like church. And the word ecclesia that Jesus originally spoke means a gathering or an assembly. It does not mean a building. It does not mean an edifice. It does not mean an office or a, a sanctuary or any of those things. Jesus said, Peter, on this revelation and this understanding that I am the Messiah, the rescuer king come from God to show everybody the way to God while I explain God, on that revelation, on that rock, I'm going to build my movement, my gathering, my assembly. In our word language nowadays, we might see this as a political rally. That's what they thought when they heard the word ecclesia. A political rally. Jesus is saying, that's what I'm going to build. It's not a place. It's not a building. It's not a new sacred space to replace an old sacred place. Uh, old sacred place. This is a brand new movement. A political, social, moral, spiritual movement. In fact, William Tyndale, who translated the first English version of the Bible, he actually used congregation in his translation instead of that word church. And that was one of the charges that was brought against him. And he wouldn't change it. He tried to keep Jesus' original word in there, and he was eventually burned at the stake. And then other sacred men came along, and they inserted a German word that sounds a little bit like our English word church. And that German word means the house of the Lord. And that's why when you and when I think of the word church, we don't think of a political rally. We don't think of a movement. We think of a building. Well, I'm going to go to church. I need to go to church. It's a place to us because the word got switched around. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. There are no more sacred spaces. What I am building is a movement. And it doesn't matter if they meet in a building. It doesn't matter if they meet in homes. It doesn't matter if they meet in a forest, on trains, on planes, on automobiles, or if one day they colonize Mars. It does not matter. I will be with them wherever two or three are gathered in my name. Man, that teaching makes it really hard to take an offering for our building program. But The other thing that Jesus did that he brought around, he inaugurated a new covenant, this new relational contract between God and people. It's like, you know, this thing that God had as an arrangement, and there's a relationship between God and people that's supposed to be unlike any other arrangement before. Before the covenant that Jesus introduced, you needed a high priest. You needed someone that could go to God on your behalf. If we were just the common people of the day, we couldn't go to God. But Jesus said the old covenant is over. There's a new arrangement now between people and God. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what religion you grew up in, what religion you grew up under. It doesn't matter what name even that you grew up worshiping. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your status or your wealth or your shame or any of the wrong you've ever done. Now everyone can come to the one creator God through me. I am now the access to the Father that everyone needs. Jesus, what about all of the things that are separating us from God? Jesus would tell us, well, hang on. I'm going to take care of that before I leave. And what he did in his death with his blood was inaugurated a brand new covenant between God and people. And the things separating God and people from all time were about to be taken care of once and for all. That should make some of us really happy. Because we weren't rich enough to buy our forgiveness. We weren't rich enough to buy indulgences. We weren't rich enough to take care. We weren't smart enough. We weren't good enough. We tried, but we didn't try hard enough. We know who we were. We know that we were hopeless and lost, but he found us as we were. And he said, I have taken care of the debt of your sin once and for all. Here's the way he said it in Luke chapter 22. In the same way. After this supper, this is the last night before he kind of leaves to get arrested. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant. Come on, everybody say it with me. This cup is the, in my blood, which is poured out for you, 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 and you. And anybody. And these were good Jewish boys. They already knew that they were in a covenant with God. See, Jewish people were already in a covenant with God. 
Wait, Jesus, why do we need a new covenant? We already have a covenant. If Jesus was announcing a new covenant, well, then the old covenant didn't apply anymore. And Jesus, you know, they're on that side of the cross. They didn't even know about the cross yet. We know about it now, so it all kind of makes sense. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And they're like, what? You're not even bleeding. Like, what are you talking about? This is the new covenant. And, my, and you know, they, he had been talking about dying, but they halfway didn't even really believe him. But just hours after that, they would know that he was nailed to a Roman cross, and they would know that his blood was running down his body and pooling and spilling onto the ground, and they would remember his words and know that blood that ran down on Calvary's cross and saturated Calvary's hill, that signals the beginning of a brand new relationship between God and people, and not just good Jewish people, not just good moral people, but all people, even the very Roman people who had Nailed him to the tree. It was all brand new, once and for all. Turn around to somebody close to you and tell them it's for you too. And then Jesus gave new meaning to the sacred text. And one day, as he's teaching to his Jewish audience, and we get this because we're not Jewish, but their lives were just so tangled up in their religion. Everything that they did centered around their religious life. And as Jesus was teaching, this, this had to have shocked them all. These were the kinds of things that they tried to stone Jesus for. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when he's talking to these, again, the Jewish people, he's talking about their Jewish Bible. It's what we would call the Old Testament. Don't think that I've come to abolish the Old Testament or the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we don't really get what that means, but to them, this was highly offensive, especially to the religious guys in the audience. Because basically what Jesus is saying, I'm going to fulfill them. In other words, I'm going to show you what they're supposed to look like. I'm going to show you the kind of life that all of your Old Testament was meant to produce in you, but it hasn't. You've gotten it wrong. But I have come not to set it aside, but to show you guys how you have been. To, in essence, Jesus is saying, hey, guys, 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 step out of the way. Let me try, and I'll show you how it's done. And Jesus so boldly claimed that the whole Old Testament funneled everything down to his person. And he told them, all of your Old Testament preachers, they were talking about me. All of the Old Testament prophecies and foretellings, they were all pointing to me. All of the deeds and actions that your Old Testament verses tell you to do, all of them. I'm about to do them like you never could. I'm about to fulfill everything. They were all advanced pictures of me and my life. And since it all leads to me and since it all points to me, once I prove it to you with my life, then I'm going to complete it in my death. And out of that and after that, I'm going to start something brand new through my spirit living in my followers. He gave new meaning to their sacred texts. And Paul was writing about 20 or 30 years after that to the church in Galatia. He said, Jesus was right. And all of us Jewish religious leaders, we kind of missed it. The Old Testament, it was really kind of this babysitter that was supposed to bring all of us to the point where we would realize that we're not good enough on our own and we can't do it. And we needed someone to come along and show us perfectly how to fulfill all of this stuff. All, the, all those laws and all of those rules that just made us realize how bad we are, they should have all pointed us to the realization that we needed someone like Jesus. And all of the richness of the Old Testament and all of the prophecy and poetry and instructions and commands and laws, all of it was like this cocoon that introduced Jesus into the world. But once Jesus emerged from the cocoon, we don't need the cocoon anymore. In fact, one writer in the new part of your Bible, it's in the book of Hebrews, one writer in the new part of your Bible calls the old part of your Bible obsolete. Now, what do you think about it? That's hard to take, isn't it? Because it's all the Word of God. But a, new, a writer in the new part of your Bible calls the old part of your Bible obsolete. That gets quiet and uncomfortable right there, right? But wait, if you take away all of the rules that make God happy with us, what are we going to do? What are we going to do if you take away the 613 laws of the old covenant between God and people? What are we people going to do without the Ten Commandments anymore? And Jesus said it is way simpler than 613 laws or Ten Commandments. And Jesus then proceeded to introduce a brand new ethic that redefined his movement, that defined 
his movement and gave identity to his movement. And listen, Christians, we, we read these verses on this side of everything, and they become so common to us. And if we've been in church for a while, these verses can lose their impact. But you need to feel the impact with which these words landed on Jesus' Jewish audience who embraced the Old Testament, who tried so hard to live out all of the commands and the rules and the laws of the Old Testament. Again, on that same last night that Jesus is with his guys before his arrest, you know, he kind of gathers them around close. And you maybe have experienced this in your life, right? If someone's getting ready to pass off the scene, this is kind of when things get crystallized, right? And everybody gets brought in close. And this is when all of the priorities kind of get aligned and all of the important things kind of rise to the top. All of the things that they want so badly for everyone to remember after they're gone. And Jesus tells them on that last night in John chapter 13, a new command. I give to you. Love one another. Well, that part wasn't very new. They'd heard that before. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, again, go back and read John 13 on your own. You don't need me to tell you all about it, but listen, Jesus is their master. Jesus is their teacher. And when they had gotten to that room, Jesus had just done something that just blew their minds. When they walked into the room, you got to understand, they walked around everywhere, right, wearing sandals, and it was all dirty and dusty, and they lived in the desert. Their feet were nasty. They stuck their feet in a bowl of water, and that water instantly turned brown mud. I heard all kinds of things. Just, ew. Can somebody say, ew? Yeah, like toenails gnarled and curled over the toes, like Imagine like a, a toenail that's like an over-under toenail, like just like just so gross and jam and jelly and all kinds of things going on there. It's just gross and caked on mud and dirt, and they come into the room, and they're all sitting around, and they know somebody forgot to, you know, hire a servant to be there to wash their feet for them because, you know, you're all sitting around. They didn't use chairs back then. They all kind of leaned on couches, which means that your feet are really close to someone else's head, right? So they all wanted to wash their feet so they could be clean, but somebody forgot to hire the servant that was going to wash all their feet, and they're kind of laying around, lounging around, wondering, well, who's going to be the guy to go around washing everybody's feet? Well, I'm not washing. I'm not washing. I'm not washing. And Jesus gets up. Jesus gets up. Jesus, the king, the leader, the Messiah, the son of the living God, he gets up and he takes off his rabbi robe that identifies him as their teacher and as their master. And he puts on himself the uniform of a servant. And he goes over into the corner and he gets the basin and he gets the water. And he comes back and he starts. And one by one, disciple by disciple, Jesus takes their nasty, grody feet and puts them into the water. And he begins to wash, begins to take the dirt off, begins to anoint them with the oil that helps them to smell better. And he goes all the way around the table. And he takes each one of their feet in his hand. Think about this. These are the hands that have healed people. These are the hands that touched a dead girl, a little girl who had died in her family home, and Jesus touched her and raised her back to life. These are the hands that have touched the eyes of a blinded man, and those blinded eyes opened, and he was able to see and see for the first time and another time, see again. And now he was using those hands, not just any hands. He was using those hands, the hands of the Messiah, to wash their feet wearing the uniform of a servant. He's supposed to be the king. He's supposed to be the ruler. He's supposed to be the one at the head of the table, but he did for them what they would not do for each other. And Jesus tells each and every one of them, a new command I give you, sitting here with your clean feet now. A new command I give you, love one another. How? What do you mean? Hold the door open? Do random acts of kind? No, 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 no. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Do this for one another. When I'm gone and people are all gathered around you to hear you teach, don't forget about this. When people want to be close to you because at one time you were close to me, don't forget that moment. Don't forget that you will never be greater than me and I have washed your feet. And Jesus turned the whole idea of leadership right side up. In other words, he was telling those special sacred men, we might say, anytime you feel like you're something and like maybe you're kind of cool because you're one of those sacred men, get a towel out and wash more feet. Yeah. 
So this morning, I'm going to wash everybody's feet. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I'm still trying to be like Jesus, everybody. I'm not there yet. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Yes. Everybody looks down. Okay, here we go. Look, and if you don't believe me, look. Look what Jesus said next. Look. By this, by you doing this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. And Jesus was telling them that love would replace law-keeping, that self-sacrifice would replace animal sacrifice, that the vertical health of your relationship with God would now be measured by your horizontal relationships. The evidence that you are a Jesus follower is not your prayers. It's not your attendance record at church. It's not how much you give in the offerings. And you should pray, and you need to come back next week to church, and yes, you can give an offering. Can I hear an amen? But those aren't the measures of your spiritual health anymore. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And it was to the degree that in another place, and I won't go there this morning, but Jesus told him in another place, look, if you're standing in line at the temple and you got your animal sacrifice to bring, because back then they had animal sacrifices, if you're standing in line at the temple and you're coming up, they're about to call your number and you're about to go up and offer your offering, you've been there all day, it stinks, this animal, this goat, this pigeon, whatever it is, they're annoying you, and you remember in that moment that things between you and your brother are off, they're not right, you've had a fight, you've had an argument, you've had a disagreement, then God can wait you go and be reconciled to your brother first, and then you come back to the temple and offer your sacrifice to God. Now, that's kind of heavy, isn't it? You wonder, did pastor really just say that God can wait? I didn't say it. Jesus said it. Hello. Well, I thought you're supposed to put God first in everything. Jesus is saying, this is how you put God first in everything. It's a brand new day. It's a brand new way. And the proof that you are my follower is how well you love one another. And then Jesus did something that was so, so controversial to them. And we read it, and we're not Jewish, so to us it's kind of, eh, you know. And, but to his first followers, who were all Jewish, this was so huge. Because one day Jesus gave new meaning to Passover. And again, we don't look at that and think of anything really special, right? I get that. But this was the most important celebration to Jewish people. This was the day when their ancient family had become a nation. The day when a people became God's people. This was like their 4th of July and their Christmas rolled into one holiday. Wouldn't that be an awesome holiday? Can you guys imagine the Christmas of July? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome to celebrate fourth Christmas, somebody? Hello? Now, can you imagine celebrating Christmas of July and whatever important figure exists in your life? Maybe it's a religious figure. If you come from Catholicism, maybe it's a pope. If you come from Christianity, maybe it's like a Rick Warren or a David Bernard. Or, you know, if you come from some kind of political campaign, then you're hopeless. God help. But, you know, just imagine whoever it is that you might revere or respect one day standing up in the Christmas of July and say, from now on, when you celebrate the Christmas of July, I don't want you to think about national independence, and I don't want you to think about Jesus. Instead, I want you to think about me. Now, that example doesn't make any sense at all, right? Somebody, somebody say that doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make no sense. Thank you, Sandra. But Jesus, look what Jesus said. And he took the bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. This isn't your body. This is Passover bread. We've been celebrating this as Jewish people for 1,400 years. 1,400 years. We've done the ceremony and the celebration and this ritual, and now you're just claiming this is your own holiday? This isn't about you. This is about Moses and our ancestors. It's about our people becoming God's people and freedom from slavery and becoming free people. You're like, remember Jesus? This isn't about you at all. And this is so, so confusing to them. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is my body. And when you celebrate Passover from now on, I want you to forget about Moses and forget about the Red Sea and the plagues and the angel of death. From now on, when you celebrate Passover, I want you to remember me. To them, this was so confusing. Jesus, Moses delivered an entire nation out of slavery. Who have you delivered? To which Jesus would have said, well, hang on. Hang on. 
Jesus, Moses gave a bunch of our slave ancestors a brand new identity. Who have you given a fresh start to? To which Jesus would have said, hang on. Hang on. Jesus, the lamb that Moses told our ancestors to use, that that they put over their doorposts and that marked them safe from judgment, who have you covered so that they would be able to escape judgment? To which Jesus would have said, hang on, hang on. And on this side of the cross and the empty tomb, we can kind of see where Jesus is going with things. But for them, on that night, they should have gotten up and left. But this is Jesus' way of saying, I am not here to continue what has already been in place and not working. This is not Temple 2.0. I don't know how to be more clear. This is something brand new, and it is for everyone. And more than just the entire nation of Israel will be set free from slavery. More than just a few people will have judgment pass over their lives and find the mercy of being in a new relationship with God. I wish that somebody would help me preach towards the end of my message this morning. More than just a few isolated special people will receive this access to God because of what I am doing. And it is something brand new. Dustin, come on up this morning. The arrival of Jesus signaled the end of the temple model and the beginning of something entirely new. Something entirely new. And there would be no more sacred places in the Jesus movement. There would not be any more few select special people. And the Old Testament and all of its sacred texts would be completely fulfilled in all of its laws and all of its poetry and promises and examples could be reduced down to a single verb, a single verb that you can apply to your relationship with God, with your neighbors, and with your enemies. And after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, his movement launched out into the world based on this newness that he had introduced, and it got off to an unbelievable start. The historians that study these things, they can't explain the church. The church makes no sense to people who make sense of these things, who make sense of movements. It makes no sense without Jesus and without his resurrection. What's happened to the church is that along the way, some old temple model thinking is kind of seeped back into the new Jesus thinking. And some things that should have been left behind got blended in. And some traditions and attitudes are just so deeply entrenched in the ways that we see religion. It's just really hard to filter them out, and and they pull, and they tug on us, and and a lot of us still struggle with this. Honestly, I mean, I I grew up in in a very traditional foundation and background myself. Some of the things that I'm saying, I'm still wrestling with all of this stuff. It's so hard because it goes against what we feel, the way we feel things should be, because we judge everything by the way we do things, right? can't imagine God's love because I only know the way that I love. can't imagine unconditional mercy because my mercy is conditional. And unfortunately, some of that temple model thinking still can stain the church today. And it's a big part of the reason why church to some people is just unnecessarily resistible. So Jared, are you saying like with a, with a few tweaks, you know, maybe we can get like all of Fairfield up in here over the next few weeks? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Just because we remove all of the obstacles between people and Jesus doesn't mean that everybody still wants Jesus. Hello. But it does mean that we can take everything out of the way. We can remove all of our traditions and all of our ways that just cloud and fog things up and show Jesus as pure, shining, and bright, and brilliant, and radiant. We can let the cross shine as an example of God's love and God's message to us purely and without complication. We can let the mercy that it offers influence and transform lives without us getting in the way. And maybe they will only wrestle with the things that they're supposed to be wrestling with. Who Jesus is. Is he really the son of God? Is he really the true king and the true kind of king? City Grace, we're going to figure this out. We're going to find out what's essential and what's Jesus given, and we're going to find out what's holding us back and what's getting in the way of people seeing Jesus. And with God's grace, look, we're not going to embrace Jared's new thing. We're not going to embrace another church's new thing. We're going to embrace the new that Jesus introduced when he said that something new is coming for all the people once and for all. And by God's grace, we're going to figure out how to be the new that he called us to be. By God's grace, 
We're going to figure out how to do the new that he called us to do. But for that to happen, you have to come back to church next week. Right? Because your sacred pastor has some sacred texts that I want to share in this sacred space so that we can all see Jesus a little more clearly. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.